0: What is happening, everyone? Coach Ishak with HockFit Coaching and Lesion Athletics and your host of Anabolic Radio. I'm joined today by Dr. Mike Izzertel, who's the co-founder of Renaissance Periodization. He also has a PhD in sports physiology, and he's contributed quite a bit to a topic that's very near and dear to all of our hearts, which is building more muscle. Dr. Mike, how are you today? I'm really good, man. Thanks for having me on. No, thank you for coming on. Honestly, I genuinely appreciate it. And thank you for all the content you've put out over the years. I'm sure I could speak for the majority when I say I've learned a lot from it, as well as, you know, the people who are tuning into this podcast that are going to be listening. I'm sure they've learned a lot from the things you've put out over the years as well. So thank you for that. And I definitely look forward to having a great discussion with you today. Totally, yeah. Um, what, you know, like go ahead
1: and uh, if you want to, you know, I can speak generally about the topic, or if you want to ask me something more specific, I can start wrapping off on that.
0: Okay, what do you think about movement execution and its importance in terms of getting a sufficient training stimulus?
1: yeah i think it's important um i think the uh, two very important things to consider when doing any movement uh, and a few others that are not as important but the two very important ones are you know How does our execution of the movement contribute to the amount of stimulus that the movement generates for muscle growth? Um, That's why we're doing the movement. Probably should be a concern. And then the other thing is, how much fatigue are we also generating with the movement? Because a lot of ways of doing an exercise can be roughly equivalent for stimulus, but some of them are much more fatiguing than others. And that means that they both make you able to do less of them in any given session or week or month or year, which means you grow less. Um, And they can potentially be, especially with chronic exposure, more likely to cause injury. Neither one of those things is good. So I think we need to look at um, movements from the perspective of what causes the maximum amount of muscle growth, stimulus, and what not minimizes fatigue, because you can really quickly get into situations where you're causing very little stimulus, and almost no fatigue, but minimizes the amount of fatigue that we have to pay given the amount of stimulus we're getting, which uh, we at RP have termed the stimulus-to-fatigue ratio. The more stimulus you can have, the better, and the less fatigue you have. As long as the stimulus is good, the better as well. And as far as what techniques... Or technical tips uh generate the best stimulus to fatigue ratio, we can take some sort of one at a time. So when we talk about what kind of technique and movement pattern stimulates the most muscle growth. Probably at the core of it is, does that technique allow the generation of a high degree of tension by the muscle in question, right? This sounds obvious, but sometimes isn't. So people will say, you know, I'm doing um, squats for my quads and you see them squat, and they're squatting really far back instead of down, and uh, they're squatting with a very wide stance at the same time, and it could be a, a really good uh, exercise for the glutes potentially, but you know the quads just are, I mean, they're, they're for sure generating some tension, but not nearly as much as they could be if you use the squat in a way that leveraged you forward a bit more to actually use your quads more to get more knee extension. Or, for example, if you're doing lateral raises in such a way that you don't really feel a whole lot of tension in your side delts you might feel a lot on your front delts and traps let's say if you're doing the extension or these lateral raise with your pinkies pointed up and more in front of you some people do because you can use more weight like that but if you simply move your hands back and you point your pinkies more down or sideways all of a sudden you'll be putting a lot more tension through and generating tension through your side delts which is really really good so there are two ways to arrive at the idea of what technique generates the most tension in the Target muscle. One way is just a biomechanical analysis, which can really just be done visually, right? If someone's squatting, but their degree of knee flexion is tiny, gee, you know, maybe they're not generating as much tension through their quads as they could be. So, what you could say is, look, if you uh, squatted a little bit more down than back, Uh, then you maybe generate more tension with your quads. And then the second way can confirm the first way, which is does the individual actually feel tension being produced through the muscle that's the target? Um, You know, uh, some exercises it's easier than others, but the person who is astute can detect where the exercise is producing tension. A lot of times in lower rep exercises, you can just feel the physical deformation of the muscle, right? If you do leg presses for sets of eight, I mean, you feel your quads being pulled. Hold apart, and you're like, Wait, there's no question that this is quad tension, right? But if you're doing lunges for sets of 20 or 30, Maybe you can't tell where the force is coming from. Is it mostly your quads or glutes? But if you do high reps, eventually where the burn happens is going to be like, okay, clearly there's tension being generated in the quads because they're accumulating lactic acid. There's a burn towards the end of the set. And for sure something is happening. Because you know, burns, metabolites are not generated unless tension is being generated, because there's no there's no way to burn fuel unless you're actually using it for something. So that's really the core. And then I would say and there's a couple of other things we could talk about for stimulus but the other big one is range of motion you can generate tension with a muscle and it does activate a lot of its motor units or parts of it but um You know, if you extend its range of motion to something that's mostly full range of motion, we can talk about that later in much more depth as to what that means. But if you allow a muscle to go through a higher range of motion, usually you activate most parts of the muscle and thus most parts of the muscle grow. So it's a good way to get a really good stimulus. Uh, And then I suppose lastly, and this is a little bit more technical of a point, but nonetheless uh, pertinent. Muscles grow best when you supply tension through them, you take them through a four-inch motion, and that they can get close to their limits in every set. It's roughly three reps away from failure or closer to failure than that. But it has to be not movement failure, but muscle failure. Movement failure can occur for a lot of reasons. One is systemic fatigue. You're doing, let's say, sets of 10 in the squat. You do a set of five and you're like, fuck this. I'm tired. Your quads aren't limiting you. Your brain is, right? And and that's definitely a thing. And then in addition to that, other muscles can limit you. I'm sure we've all done high rep squats where our lower backs get so pumped and such a big burn that we can't even really – we don't even know what's going on with our quads because we have to stop because our lower back hurts so much. That means the quads might have had like – Thank God. One sec. Sorry. Dell Support Assist wants to run a scan on my system that I never asked for. Thanks, Dell. So, um, you know, yeah, yeah. Thanks. Right. So, uh, you know, if you're doing a set of squats and you have to stop because of your lower back. The, the reality might be that you stopped at one rep shy of failure for your spinal erectors but eight reps shy of failure for your quads I And mean, then is that really a really good working set the answer is no you're missing out on a lot so that third point is the first point is generate tension through the target muscle using the target muscle second point is use a, a good degree of range of motion and the third point is make sure that the target muscle is the limiting factor not other systems generally the systemic component and, and other synergist muscle groups. So like you're doing skull crushers and you get to a three reps away from fail and you're like oh, like that. And someone's like, why are you slowing down? You're like, I feel it like crazy in my triceps. I'm feeling a super big stretch at the bottom, big contraction at the top. And when I'm getting close to fail, I mean, everything, I feel fine. My chest feels okay. My shoulders feel fine. It's just the triceps are really the limiting factor. Gee, you know, that's a real good work set. Whether or not your elbows are like this, like that, wrists like this, like that, is a tiny, tiny, tiny difference. And as long as someone is checking all those three boxes, I think their degree of stimulus is probably pretty good. So we checked off the boxes of stimulus. We know that if we're using the muscle, they're mostly as full range of motion and the muscle is limiting factor during hard sets. We're really checking really good stimulus boxes and you're for sure doing a good job growing muscle. The thing is, there's also some boxes we have to check or check as little as possible to get as little fatigue as possible. One of those boxes is how much joint and connective tissue distress you feel during the movement so like if you do skull crushers with your elbows like this and you feel a ton of pain in the elbow joint with every rep gee whiz it's probably going to sum up to something not so great over the weeks and months of training but if you do this and all of a sudden the elbow pain is gone if you ask me which way is better for you i would say it's the way that doesn't cause the most pain in your connective it's a crazy idea right but a lot of guys will sort of just assume that exercises come with a certain amount of joint pain, and sometimes that's true, but a lot of times we can wiggle our technique in such a way as to minimize it. You'll see people wrapping their knees on the leg press and stuff like that. Uh, Maybe if they adjusted their foot position or their stance, they could get just as good of a stimulus, but with less joint pain, and a lot of times it does come down to just really minor adjustments that can fix that stuff and and make the movement much less fatiguing. A very related concept is uh, the delayed onset soreness and fatigue of the connective tissues and of the um, uh, joints themselves, sometimes an exercise feels okay when you're in the gym, especially when you're warmed up. But like two or three days later, your knees hurt or your back hurts and not in a good way. And sometimes some exercises can benefit from technical adjustments that make that much better, right? So if you can make those, then that's really good. And another big factor, and there are a few others, of fatigue is the... uh, the amount of, I don't want to use the wrong term here, the rating of perceived exertion per repetition and per hard set of the exercise. Now, that has to be scaled to the stimulus because sometimes the exercises that feel the hardest and drain you the most at a almost psychological level, at a systemic level, they're oftentimes the ones that hit the muscle really, really well. But sometimes they hit the muscle okay, but they just come with a lot of systemic fatigue. And if we minimize that, we probably do a pretty decent job. For example, if you do uh, partial squats with 500 pounds, um, the sheer weight uh, and a psychological effort it requires to move it uh, might give you a ton of systemic fatigue, and you feel really, really beat up. Forget about the joint stuff, which of course is terrible. You're going to be like, "Wow, you know, that really drains me." And you know, a lot of systemic fatigue can interfere with the recovery and adaptation of all of your other muscle groups, and limit how, even how much quad training you can do. But imagine if we taught someone who's used to partial squats. And a lot of systemic fatigue to do weightlifting style high bar squats super deep with a pause, especially maybe with a slightly slower eccentric the stimulus to the quads is going to be better if anything right checking all those other three boxes but the level of systemic fatigue is just not going to be as high because now using 300 pounds and not 500 i mean there's only so much that 300 pounds can beat you up if you're used to partial squatting 500 like this doesn't feel terrible my quads are going crazy but the rest of me feels mostly fine and if you can find an exercise that doesn't hurt your joints a whole lot doesn't make them sore or in pain after in days and weeks after and it doesn't drain you like crazy for how much stimulus it gives you and it gives you a ton of great stimulus. Gee, you know, you found a really, really awesome exercise. For me, the high bar squat is one of those exercises I can use as an example, or a full range of motion leg press or a hack squat or an inclined dumbbell press. Amazing feeling at the target muscle. Only limited by the target muscle. And then the fatigue is just not that crazy. People ask me all the time, like, don't your knees hurt from squatting? No, and they never have except for, like, when I hurt them in jiu-jitsu. So um, if you can honestly say to yourself, I feel this in the target muscle a ton, the target muscle is limiting it, tons of tension being put through. And at the same time, it's not beating me up a ton Oh, my God, you have an exercise, which you can do a lot of to cause a lot of growth sustainably over long periods of time without getting hurt. Gee, that's that's a real good technique. And if that's happening. I can't look at you and say that your technique is terrible, even if it looks maybe a little strange to me, maybe not how I would do it. So, for example, my training partner, Charlie Jung, he does skull crushers with his elbows like this. I do mine with my elbows like that. He knows the stimulus to fatigue ratios. He's my training partner. I never in a million years would, would be like, hey, man, you should really put your elbows in. That His body is designed differently than mine and he feels great doing that. And He's been training for 15 years, so he knows exactly what hurts his elbows and how he feels his triceps and what doesn't so good technique is making sure you check all those fundamental boxes it's not saying this is how you do it right this is how you do it wrong as long as that person's checking all those boxes really well then that's really good now real quick caveat sometimes people say like well it works for me but they don't know anything about stimulus or fatigue they just haven't given it a lot of thought and they're just defending their pride right like well it's just how i squat well maybe you fucking squat wrong right and that's not a good way to tell them that maybe if they gain your trust at some point or want to play around with stuff Stuff, you can say, hey, why don't you give it a shot to moving your knees forward a bit? They try it. They're like, holy shit, this is my quads like crazy. And what else you got? And then you can
0: rework their squats slowly over time. And
1: they're like, oh my God, thank God I started squatting like this because it's better in general.
0: all great points, man. The primary reason for me wanting to open up with movement execution as a topic is because I believe it's such a fundamental role for all trainees, right? No matter the level of advancement, it plays such a huge role. And I was curious, you know, we talk a lot about feeling the muscle or that mind to muscle connection, that elusive mind to muscle connection. But I wanted to hear some of your thoughts on the benefits of you utilizing an attentional focus of attention, more so an internal focus of attention, that mind to muscle connection to our advantage when we're training. Sure. That's a really good question. I can answer it pretty comprehensively. I
1: think that when you're a beginner in the first several years of training, usually your predominant focus has to be on technique that is externally perceived and viewed such that you're learning how to do the basic fundamental movements basically correctly. So it takes a long time to learn that. And also beginners, there's so much going on. You're not going to be able to detect what your muscle's doing because you're like, there's a barbell on my back. People are staring at me. The gym music is weird. My shoes hurt. This sucks. I want to go home. And all of a sudden, someone's like, zone in on your quads. You're like, What the fuck is a quad? You don't even know. Right? Who knows, right? <laughs> First time I squat, I could only focus on my soul because it was leaving my body. So, right. So I think beginners need to be concerned with getting really good technique. Intermediates need to start becoming more concerned with making sure they're training hard enough because we know beginners don't really train hard enough sometimes. They think they're three reps in reserve and they're really like six reps in reserve, which means they're doing a lot more sets than they have to to get the growth. They want, and even maybe they're getting more fatigue than they need to, just working through a bunch of low-quality sets. They could get less fatigue and more stimulus if they trained a little harder each set. So the intermediates, once they have good technique, can start to push a little bit close to failure at the end of each mesocycle, a little bit close to failure, a little bit close to failure, getting failure, knowing what that means for them, and really calibrating what three and two and one rep in reserve feels like on all the exercises. That'll get them a ton of really great growth and. That's a super good thing to focus on, right? And you never want to focus on that before you get good technique because I don't know if you've ever been around people who have poor technique and want to go to failure. Holy (laughs) shit. It just gets progressively worse as the set goes on. You have no idea what you're training. You're just kind of moving around doing this and that and who knows. And then lastly, once you get to be more advanced, you know, five, six years of training and the way you know you're advanced is your technique is good and your ability to push really hard without breaking good technique is just set in stone. You know how to go to failure without swinging, and jiving, and moving and grooving. Once you know how to do that, then a small benefit can be attained by enhancing the attentional focus to the muscle that's targeted. The mind-muscle connections are sometimes called. So once you know how to do a proper barbell curl, and I'm going to take several years to really nail that in, and once you know how to really squeeze the living shit out of it, which is going to take another few years to really milk that out, then you can be like, okay, now 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 that I know how to train and I going to train hard, I'm going to really focus on my biceps while doing both of those things. And I'm going to take this hard, specific training and make sure it's hitting exactly where I want, not my forearms, not my shoulders, really my biceps. And then you can benefit from it. I will say that in most of the literature, the benefit of the mind-muscle connection is not amazing. It's a small benefit, but it's almost certainly a benefit, probably not a huge benefit to the raw stimulus that you get, but a pretty decent benefit to the stimulus-to-fatigue ratio. Because if you can contract the actual target muscle a bit more and the other muscles a bit less. your amount of stimulus to the muscle is probably about the same, but you reduce the stimulus to the muscles that aren't designed to be used. And thus, you don't get as much systemic fatigue. You don't get as much fatigue in those muscles for when you train them later. And that way, you get almost the same growth or a little better and less fatigue. So you can do more growing over time without fucking yourself up as much.
0: For sure, man. 100% all great points. So would you say it doesn't have any merit for someone who's in the beginning stages of their level of advancement to create that neurological? that mind to muscle connection and utilize it to their advantage when they're training?
1: I don't know if it doesn't have any mirrors, it's probably got some, but uh, you're taking two things into assumption there. One, their technique's already good, she probably isn't, Uh, and if it is, they're not a beginner. And then two, they know how to train hard. I'll tell you this, training hard or going close to failure is going to make a huge difference compared to how good your mind-muscle connection is, much bigger difference. And if your mind-muscle connection is designed to laser focus your hard training into a muscle group, just look at how that statement logically unfolds if you remove the idea that you know how to train hard, right? It's like saying, okay, this missile guidance system is going to deliver the warhead to the target. And you're like, okay we don't have a warhead. They're like, well, that's a big fucking problem, (laughs) right? Like, uh, So this guidance system is pointless. We're like, that's correct, right? Um, So first, you want to work on building the missile, right? which is technique. Then you want to focus on building a big fucking mean warhead. And then you can focus on the guidance system because when you have one, two, three makes a good difference. If you don't have a warhead, you don't have a missile, there's nothing to shoot, right? So um, with a mind-muscle connection, in addition to that, it's a a very um, highly level skill that's very well cultivated and uh beginners just aren't that good at it man beginners can't even tell when they're three versus six reps away from failure half the time and beginners technique breaks down like crazy when they get close to failure so let me ask you this if your technique on a squat is breaking down to where you're like coming up with your butt first and everything how much help is screening someone feel it in your quads gonna be when they're like i'm just trying to survive right like quads i forgot about that five reps ago um, so, in order to pull off my muscle connection well, there is the presumption that you have good technique and the presumption that you know how to laser focus, train hard, and then my muscle connection can start to pay its biggest dividends. Can it pay some dividends at the beginner level? Sure. But uh, I'll say this, um, and I used to teach this in a course about personal training when I was a university professor, cueing during a movement and even between sets. Is a very low bandwidth process. You can't tell someone but one to two things during a movement and between a movement that they can process. And this is a, um, a mistake I made and a bunch of beginner trainers make. Is they'll get a client who's been with them for a week or two and they get a bar in their back and they're like, "All right, all right, diaphragm down, ribs up, flare lats, butt back, hip hit And you're like, "What the fuck? What?" They don't even know half the shit means. And even if they knew it on an intellectual level, as soon as they have 200 pounds on their back, they're like, "Fuck." fuck, 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 fuck. I'm just trying to survive and not die. So... Cueing is a very limited process. And if you have the ability to cue, you have to use two things. One, use few cues, and two, use the most important, salient, applicable cues that will help the best. If I'm cueing a beginner, I'm going to be cueing their external technique because that pays the biggest dividends as far as stimulus and safety, right? And then if I'm working with an intermediate, I'm going to be cueing their technique a little bit if it falls off, but it shouldn't, right? If they're a true intermediate, I'm going to be cueing their intensity, relatively speaking, their relative effort. When they think they have three reps, I'm going to be like more, more. I'm going to swear at them and yell very obscene things at them so that they push the muscle really hard. That's going to pay huge dividends. And then if I have someone who doesn't have a problem with technique, doesn't have a problem with pushing super hard, then I will cue them like, listen, let's get zoned in. And on this next set, I really want you to feel your quads. And if you don't feel your quads, adjust the technique in the way you know in your head is supposed to be the way to feel your quads more. Like For example, in the the squat guys will go down in the squat. This is the upper body. This is the the uh, the thigh, right? When they go down in the squat, a lot of times they'll come up very symmetrically, and you're using a lot of quads. This is great. When they get fatigued, they'll start to do this, right? Where their butt will come up first, and even advanced people do that. So when someone's like feel your quads, they make the correction to stay more upright, and then all of a sudden they're feeling their quads more. A beginner, oh my god, that's like calculus to them. I would personally stay away from making those kinds of suggestions in most cases
0: this all comes back to foundations right really understanding what training hard or to a close proximity to failure feels like or understanding how to execute movements properly or understanding the proper technique involved with performing that movement right a lot of people try to get from point a to point b without figuring out what they have to do in between to get to that end goal successfully right and i i think that's the biggest thing i notice in the gym these days or whenever like you know i see people scrolling on instagram or talk about this is like they they like to talk about rpe rir all this super advanced stuff which is great right it's super important but like you first first you got to understand how training to failure feels like you got to understand how to your movements properly and then from there we continue to build that foundation yeah. um, so a lot of great points I,
1: mean, I will say that there's a real good way to deal with technique breaking down when failure is impending The best way to deal with it is if you have someone who you trained as a beginner, okay, because then you have the most influence on them and they have a few shitty habits or or none because they don't have any habits in the gym at all. And there's a two-part way to be able to do this. The first is to establish a culture between you and them, a culture of technique, technique, uh, of respect for technique of uh making sure that technique is is deified appropriately it really needs to be deified it needs to be held on a pedestal good technique comes before everything and it doesn't fucking matter if your set did this or that or how many reps you hit or how who looked or you yelling when you were deadlifting if your technique isn't good you suck and if you establish that as a culture people internalize that culture and they take it with them every where they go if someone values technique over everything they're never really going to steer into a bad technique situation very often because they're going to correct themselves right it's valuable to them technique is not just a way we use to work out and the workouts the goal technique is the goal and it opens all the other doors for you right so If you inculcate that in folks that you're training, you're going to have a real easy time encouraging good technique because they're going to want to do it. Second of all, the way you do it with beginners is you keep them very far from failure. And that means that they won't have a challenge in ensuring good technique because it's easy to do good technique, well, easier when failure is not approaching and you're not in pain and various muscles are trying to give out on you. So what you do is for at least several months, I would keep most of my clients as a personal trainer pretty far away from failure and inculcating in them a culture of technique while of course practicing, teaching good technique and practicing good technique. After six months or a year, these folks have really good technique that they're proud of, they own it, it's what's called ingrained, which means they can do it with no cueing at all, then you start to push them a little closer to failure. And some people will say, like, well, that's kind of stupid because they miss a ton of gains if you don't push them closer to failure early. That's just not true because beginners get easy gains anyway. You don't have to push them close to failure. They get gains looking at dumbbells. So you might as well use the easy gains time not to push them super hard, but to get them to uh, really get that culture of really, really great technique, stay shy of failure, once you have them after several months, they're going to be able to produce more and more effort without their fatigue ever or sorry, without their technique ever breaking down. And then you're in
0: a really, really good spot. For sure. 100%, man. All great points, especially when it comes to developing your foundation and ensuring you're performing the movements you're programmed to do with the right technique and developing immaculate technique over time. Did you want to briefly touch on momentum and how it can be um, advantageous in some situations and how it could be completely useless in others? In athletic events and
1: weightlifting training for sport, uh, momentum is a benefit in specific situations because you're actually practicing generating momentum, which is what you want to do in a lot of sport. In bodybuilding, not exclusively, but for the most part, momentum is not a good thing because momentum means that you are generating movement uh, and you're generating higher velocities and we know that. With lower velocities, you have better muscle contraction or you produce more force. Um, So if you can generate a lot of momentum, slowing down is probably going to use the same amount of muscle, but at lower velocities, which are also safer, um, they're safer because the higher velocity movement is, the more risky it is for injury. Um, That occurs because of the velocity itself and also because when you try to rein in the velocity, you have to apply a lot of force and a lot of corrective movement in order to re-catch the dumbbell, so to speak and that a lot of involves a lot of peak forces exposed to structures not at their strongest so what i would say is in hypertrophy training for muscle growth, uh, momentum shouldn't be avoided like crazy. But you should never do anything to generate momentum on purpose. Sometimes it's okay to have it a little bit as a side effect. Like if your dumbbells fall down a little bit faster than maybe you'd like at the end of a lateral set raise, that's okay. You should control it to some extent on the way down. But you know, it's you don't have to you know be absolutely religious about it. On the other hand, if you're using Momentum, to get the dumbbell into place, you know, why aren't you using your muscles, <laughs> that target muscles you're supposed to be using? And the answer could be that you're using a little bit too much weight and maybe it's not worth the effort. You really have to ask yourself the question of, you know, am, am I trying to get an adaptation in some part of the force velocity curve or am I just trying to make sure the target muscle generates tension in the safest way possible? Absolutely. And if the answer is in the safest way possible, then you don't want to on purpose minimize velocity, but you're sure as hell don't want to maximize it for no good reason. The only reason you'd want to maximize velocity is if it was relevant to your sport training. Because of hypertrophy training, it's not. It's not worth the risk. Like Anytime you do very ballistic, high-velocity, high-momentum activities... You're incurring a little bit more risk of injury and damage, and that's okay because it's worth it to your sport. But if you're a bodybuilder or somebody just trying to get more muscular, it's not worth it at all. So the real question isn't why we wouldn't do momentum. The real question is why we would. And the, the answer to why we wouldn't is a slight enhancement of injury risk. Nothing crazy. But the better question is why would we use momentum? And very few people have a good answer for that sort of thing
0: for sure for sure 100% man all great points I definitely do think it's super beneficial to just ensure you're lifting properly with little to no momentum right our goals to place the maximum amount of tension on the muscle group we're trying to work we don't want to get a bunch of extra force where it's not supposed to be and I guess this could be branched off into range of motion and how there's different points in a range of motion how there's specific benefits behind uh, different portions of the range of motion and uh, from the research I've seen I know when a muscle group is uh, loaded in its lengthened position that stimulates the fiber to grow in a way which meets the demand which is to increase in fiber length do you have any important points you'd like to touch on there
1: yeah I think that there are some benefits to various um, extremes of range of motion and, of course, benefits to the middle parts. So that in order to get all the benefits, you should probably be training with a more or less full range of motion or fuller range of motion more of the time. Specifically, if there is a range of motion that the muscle is capable of exerting and you're willfully or by accidentally ignoring it entirely, you you might want to consider throwing in an exercise that attends to that range of motion. For example... If you do only wide grip pressing for your pecs, that's a real good way to grow real big pecs. But you might be missing out on just a little bit of growth if you don't do some cable crossovers or just some flies that take you from this position of the pec at the maximally contracted to here or even to here, you're going to be engaging parts of the muscle that are really worthwhile. And at the other end, if you never stretch real deep on your bench press or dumbbell presses, then you're missing out some stretch via tension mechanism, which is seemingly uh, its own independent mechanism of growth. and. Uh, right, yeah, and some of that hypertrophy can actually occur uh, in series rather than parallel, which is pretty cool. Um, I don't think it's a big difference. You'll still get jacked either way, but you'll get more jacked if you use all of the tools than if you use just some of the tools. And I think there's kind of like, a, like you said, an interconnectedness with a true approach to full range of motion where you get almost all those benefits. Every single time you do an exercise, like, you know, if you're leg pressing and you go for a super big quad stretch and a peak contraction at the top, or you just extend your knees pretty close to full lockout or at full lockout, man, there's just not a whole lot of quad that you're not stimulating. Whereas, if you just do a real partial range of motion, people could say, well, why don't you go for a full stretch? You'd have to make up an answer for that. And they say, why don't you go all the way up, and you'd have to make up an answer for that. And at the same time, in order to get the same sets and reps with a partial range, a lot of times you have to use larger external loads. And the degree of external loading is much more related to injury than the degree of internal loading. So. A lot of times if you do a full range of motion squat, you know, the internal forces are, are, are really high because your sticking point is something you're just going right through and you have to generate a ton of internal force to get through the sticking point. If you do a partial squat, you can do, uh, you know, your internal forces are just as high, but in order to get the internal forces high, because you're better leveraged in a partial squat, you have to use more external force. You have to use more weight on the bar and more weight on the bar usually means an increase of injury risk. So if you can do 4 of motion, not only do you benefit muscle growth, but you also reduce the downside of injury which is, man, that literally attends to both of our stimulus and fatigue. Maximize the stimulus, minimize the fatigue, which I think is a really, really awesome thing. Now, to an earlier question of yours, there's definitely a, a place where you can take range of motion that uh, is bad. And and I would say that the easiest way to describe where that range of motion can be excessive is by looking at the stimulus to fatigue ratio again. Point number one of the stimulus uh, checklist is, are you putting tension through? Through the muscle, uh, through the majority of the muscle, and there's a high degree of tension. Well, imagine stretching your pecs so far in the flies that you're now even locking out your arms and stretching your biceps a ton, and you're going super, super deep. Someone can ask you, like, hey, do you feel your pecs a lot tension wise? You're like, you know, I feel a big stretch at the bottom, but I don't really feel a ton of tension. And when the dumbbells come up past the midway point, it's just such small dumbbells I have to use, such light weights because I have to go so deep. They don't even feel a lot of tension in my pecs. I just feel like it's mostly a stretching exercise, gee, I think you're going so low that the muscle is really outside of its most active range of motion, and it's now in a passive range of motion, which is totally safe, but maybe not as effective because you're just not generating a lot of force with the target muscle. Now, interestingly enough, you are generating a ton of force with your biceps, which do flex at the shoulder, but you don't do flies for your biceps. You do them for your pecs. You can do them for your biceps, but most people, when they do them, they're like, I'm going to train pecs. So if you go so deep that it just doesn't make any more sense, you might be reducing the stimulus. So if you ask, you know, how much range of motion is too much on the stimulus side, the answer is, can you feel a large amount of tension through your target muscle? And if the answer is not really anymore, you're probably going too much of a range of motion. Or remember, another part of it was, is there a limiting, uh, what's the limiting factor? Is it other muscles or is it that muscle and target? If you do your completely straight arm flies super, super deep as much as you can, a lot of times your biceps will actually be the limiting factor and not even your Right, Your biceps will go to failure first and then it's not a very good check- uh, chest exercise because it doesn't check our other box for stimulus. So now it's bad on the stimulus side. We can look at the fatigue side and what about connective tissue and joint disruption, right? Because that was one of our fatigue indices is like how much damage are we doing or how much pain are we incurring in connective tissues and joints. And if you go, for example, you want to squat so deep or leg press so deep that you're willing to round your back a whole lot at the bottom just to get extra depth, you sure you can do it, and it's going to stimulate the quads at least as much, maybe more because you get more range of motion. The problem is, it might start to lead to joint pain and uh, disruption in the various uh, areas of the lower back and the sacral region, etc. Then all of a sudden, it's just not worth it anymore because your stimulus to fatigue ratio goes down. So what I would say is range of motion has to be one that produces a ton of tension through the target muscle isn't limited by any other muscle and doesn't exact a heavy toll on the connective tissues uh, and and, and joints and then if that's the case then you probably have a very good safe range of motion and a lot of times there's a big leeway there like if I see guys squatting just below parallel versus all the way as low as they can I don't really ever lose a lot of sleep about it because it's pretty good right? but if guys are stopping here where they could be Go it here or here yeah that's probably leaving a lot of you know some gains on the on the table but mostly just incurring a whole lot of fatigue for no added gains
0: thousand percent we want the tension um, in the targeted muscle right we don't want a bunch of tension getting where we don't want it sure. um, and I guess um, I guess this uh, could branch off into like really understanding your anatomy right and using that to your benefit when you're training um, for example like Understanding that there's different subdivisions and the different subdivisions play different roles, right? That'll guide us in terms of exercise selection, selecting exercises that will help us in full development of those muscles. So for example, like overloading um, your chest with flat dumbbell press, for example. And then uh, I heard this from Joe Bennett, I believe it was, but you're basically like you don't sweep the same areas of the floor, right? So maybe we could get um, some low to high cable flies to get the clavicular fibers, maybe some high to low cable flies to get the uh, costal pec fibers right
1: totally yeah um another good example of that is like people will have this completely pointless debate of what's better for your back um and or lats a lot of people think those two are the same thing and again to your point that not a very good understanding of anatomy there's a lot more muscle in your back than just your lats They say what's better for the for the back slash lats is it pull-ups Or is it bent over rows? Well, for your lats, the answer is pull-ups. For the rest of your back, it's bent over rows. So then really what's the answer well, why would you ever just do one? Why can't you do It's like the, the Joe Bennett the Joe Bennett analogy is like what's better cleaning your kitchen or cleaning your living room? Like who the hell is stopping you from cleaning both of those or oh, I guess nobody. Well then for love of God, and so you basically have to look at your muscles and it is actually not that complicated. You don't have to know that much biomechanics. Look at your muscles and their major functions and just make sure that you got at least one exercise a week to check off their major functions and as long as you have that. Generally speaking, the volume you do total in your program should account for all the differences there. And because most muscles contract a large portion of their fibers anytime they do anything, it's really a matter of like making sure you sort of dot your I's and cross your T's. It's it's not like, you know. If you have like 15 sets a week of pressing with triceps like this and doing push downs like that, you don't have to have another 15 sets a week going behind the head because your long, all the tricep contracts really, really well when you're doing any of this stuff. But you might want to have some couple sets, maybe five behind the head. And funny enough, even when you do pull downs and, and pullovers and stuff like that, your long head works in a lot of overhead pulling work. So if you do pull ups and pull downs, you might not even have to do overhead tricep extension. So just look at your uh, fundamental uh, kinesiology and uh, functional anatomy and just make sure you're not leaving swaths of muscle completely unattended because you think, oh, it's working super well in there, especially if you want to bring up a certain muscle group. Um, This is something that Brett Contreras did for the fitness industry, was he figured out a bunch of ways to train glutes that nobody had ever really thought of or didn't formalize. And he worked specifically with clients that had big enough legs that they wanted, had big enough enough hamstrings that they just didn't have the kind of glutes they wanted and when they would say hey, how do I get big glutes they would hear just squat just deadlift well, I'm already doing that god damn it and my glutes aren't big enough and it turns out if you look at a biomechanical analysis squats and deadlifts are great glute builders but they miss some of the functions of glutes that are really going to help that extra bit of growth and if you do some hip thrusts some one leg hip thrusts some of those frog pump thingies they all fucking look weird but goddamn, they do put that little plus sign on growing the glutes after months and months of doing all those things plus your core movements all of a sudden you have way better glutes because you looked into the biomechanics and made sure you're doing what you're doing so what I would say to people is this just do basic fundamental movements if the going is good don't fucking bother with bullshit super science-y biomechanics crap but when you have a muscle that's not growing like you want it to be in relation to others now's the time to learn a bit more because just doing more tricep pushdowns might not be the thing to get the back of your arm really to get bigger. Maybe it was the overhead work that was missing. Do a couple months of that and you're like, holy shit, that worked like magic. Ta-da! You know, it's no surprise. That is, uh, you know, the kind of thing that essentially develops the point that if things are going well, you don't have to worry about a lot of stuff. But if things start to not go well, maybe some extra thinking is in order.
0: 100%, man, all great points. I guess this just reiterates the fact that much more how it's important to work your muscle groups from varying joint angles and how we could really maximize our muscular potential if we really just understand anatomy that much more. Again, we don't have to be an expert about it, but just having a basic general understanding could be something that fundamentally changes our training. And um, I know my brother, Chris Barracat, he had a publication put out not too long ago where they were actually measuring EMG activity across varying uh, shoulder joint angles. So basically they had the glenohumeral joint, the shoulder joint in a shoulder flex position. They had it at a shoulder fixed position, arms to the side, and a shoulder extended position, basically arms behind you, and they found that EMG activity was different um, based on the glenohumeral joint angle, based on shoulder joint angle. Um, Did you have any important points to touch on there and how we might be leaving some gains on? the table if we don't really devise a strategically structured way to maximize our gains. Totally.
1: And I just want to make the point that look. Most of your growth is just going to come from doing anything for the biceps. Like, it doesn't matter. Um, that's maybe 85, maybe 90% of your growth. But at some point, that's not good enough. And if you're missing some of those other angles, they will give you a newfound gains. Not a ton of gains. I don't want anyone to listen to this podcast and think, man, as soon as I start doing seated dumbbell incline curls, my shit is going to blow off. Double, it's not. Right? If you've been doing barbell curls or easy bar curls and your biceps are a certain size, then that's not going to be any revolution that's going to make your biceps that much bigger. But it will make them bigger and better and more injury-resistant and give you a much more complete physique. Another really cool thing is if you're used to doing curls exactly the same way, you can develop some local fatigue, some shoulder trouble, some elbow trouble, maybe some tendon stuff where because you've just been doing repetitive motion for so long, it's starting to be overkill, right? Cool thing about variation in angles is if you stop doing as many barbell standing curls like you're used to and they're sort of wearing it down, start doing more incline seated curls or cable Mano Henselman curls or something, then you are hitting the joints from a different angle, from a fresh angle, which they're not really inclined to be overused. And then all of a sudden, you just bought yourself a new lifespan of really good, great, hard bicep training. Which is awesome. And then once your ability to do barbell curls comes back, or in other words, your joints aren't irritated from that anymore because you gave them a big break, now you're in a really good role where you can go back to doing mostly barbell curls, getting great gains again because it's a novel exercise, and your joints are nice and safe.
0: Great points. Great points. And I guess this goes back to the idea that, um, or of Wolf's Law, right? Like progressive overload is not only just for the muscle, but it also applies to your joints and your connective tissue and your actual bones, right? And um, you also had a great point where you said, you know... Does it really make a big difference in terms of beginners or those um, getting into the even intermediate stage? And I always think like fundamentals will always stay fundamentals regardless of what level of advancement you're at, right? They're there for a reason. You first got to understand that your like, technique has to be there, training to failure has to be there, uh, selecting movements where you're uh, uh, getting a good, a sufficient training stimulus and um, not accumulating too much fatigue along with that. You guys coined this term not too long ago, Honda huh? stimulus to fatigue ratio.
1: Yeah, I think it is a pretty cool term because it describes like a really cool concept at the same time. Like ultimately when you go to the gym, what do you want the most of? Well, stimulus, that's why you're in the gym, but it's not a free pass. What do you want the least of? Fatigue. It's like if you go to an amusement park, what do you want the most of? Riding all of your most fun roller coasters. What do you want the least of? Standing in line, getting coca cola build on you, shit like that, right? So if you can have the best amusement park experience it's not just going to be like, hey, did you ride all the fun rides? It's going to be like, how long did you wait in line, too? And if you can legitimately say, dude, I went to Six Flags, I got all amazing roller coasters, I rode all my fun ones, and it, all the lines were super short, and we got food really quick, and it was super cheap. Oh my god, like who can beat that, right? So, exactly. same way in the gym, you get the most stimulus to the target muscles, the least fatigue, which means you can go on and repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, and then over years and years, you'll get super jacked, and then finally, you'll have real friends, and you can leave your current fake friends behind because real friends like you for how jacked you are not what's in your mind that last reasons. part of sarcasm i hope
0: <laughs> awesome man i know you said you didn't have too long i don't want to keep you if um you're short we're short on time here
1: yeah i'm pretty close to out of time unfortunately
0: just about out of time okay yeah. okay we'll we'll link up uh in the near future for some other episodes but i want to thank you again for coming on and um enlightening us with the the road to making the most gains
1: <laughs> awesome well it's my pleasure man and thank you so much for having me on
0: cheers we'll talk soon you. bye-bye All right